All right, Frank, let's go to Luke chapter 5. Now, I notice you don't have a Bible, which is totally fine. We'll put it up on the screen. You don't want to look over the shoulder with his. That looks a little intimidating. You know what they say about, well, forget it. Okay, Luke chapter 5. Now, uh, we're going to continue on in our series in Luke, and we're, we're going to start actually here. We're going to read the text. We're going to go through the text, and then Leviticus will make an appearance. And so I just, it wouldn't be, it wouldn't be Luke without Leviticus. And so here we go. Luke chapter 5, verse 17. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. They had come from every village of Galilee and from Judea and Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. So men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus. When they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd, right in front of Jesus. When Jesus saw their faith, he said, Friend, your sins are forgiven. Pharisees and teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, Who is this fellow who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus asked, uh, excuse me, Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, Why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat, and go home. Immediately he stood up in front of them, took what he'd been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed and gave praise to God. They were filled with awe and said, we have seen remarkable things today. Now, this is a story that a lot of us have heard, and it's one of, it can be viewed as one of those nice, cute Sunday school stories, right? Here's Jesus walking on water, and here's Jesus with lambs around his shoulders, and here's Jesus, you know, touching a leper. And, but there's, there's some really big stuff going on in this text. And there are a number of firsts. This is the first time we come across scribes and Pharisees. This is the first time Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man. And this is the first time Jesus announces forgiveness of sins. And so uh, with like the whole text of you, I want to walk kind of line by line through it to capture some of these interesting nuances. So back to verse 17. One day Jesus was teaching and Pharisees and teachers of the law were there. Now, the Pharisees get a bad rap uh, in most Christian circles. The Pharisees were, there were many different sects of Judaism in the first century. And all of these different divisions in Judaism were wrestling with The following problem. How is it that we, as God's people, are oppressed by these pagan Gentiles, the Romans? Right? How does that work? And so there were different answers that the different divisions would give. The Pharisees, to the Pharisees' mind, the answer was intensifying observance to the Jewish law. And the way they did that was that they took the law and they... The law was 613 commandments of the first five books of the Bible called the Torah. And they would start applying that law to all kinds of situations that weren't addressed in the 613 commandments. And they would build, it was called a fence, around the law so that you wouldn't even get close to breaking one of the commandments. So for instance, if, if one of the commandments, let's say, was do not touch the black table, the Pharisees would have a law that said, don't get close to the black table. Or maybe even another law that said, don't look at the black table. Right? So what they would do is they'd build a fence around it so that you couldn't even get close to breaking the actual commandment. Now, the problem with the Pharisees is that the Pharisees gave equal weight to their oral traditions 
as they did to the written law. Jesus came to fulfill the written law, but in so doing, he's going to offend a lot of their traditions. So that's where the conflict's going to come. But this is the first time we've met these guys, and we always think of them as the bad guys of the Gospels, but quite honestly, they'd be most like us when you study them. We may do a whole teaching on the Pharisees just to kind of break that idea, because we, they would be a lot like us, and if Jesus, was, if, if Jesus was going to belong to any one of these groups, it would have most likely been the party of the Pharisees. So you can't just say, hey, these are the bad guys, they're evil, and they're done. No, these, these were the guys most committed to obedience to Yahweh. And so they took the 613 commandments and added a whole bunch just to make sure you didn't break one of the 613. So these guys show up, and Luke records for us that Jesus has gotten so popular in his ministry that now we have folks coming from all over the Galilee and even from Jerusalem. So Jesus has now got the attention of the religious establishment. So they're there listening to him teach. Now, next part. And the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. And, and, and Luke continually, remember the Holy Spirit lands on Jesus at his baptism. The Holy Spirit leads Jesus into the wilderness. And, and so Luke is constantly reminding us What's energizing the ministry of Jesus is the uh, validation and the vindication and the power of the Father God. And that becomes important because later, some of Jesus' opponents are going to accuse him of being in league with the enemy. Because no one can deny that something miraculous has happened, happening in Jesus. So you either have to say it's from God, in which case that would validate Jesus' claims about himself, or the only other option is it's from Satan, Right? That's all you got. So Luke is continually holding out for us that the ministry of Jesus his, is vindicated and validated not through the religious establishment of Judaism, but from God directly. Continuing on. Some men came carrying a paralyzed man on a mat and tried to take him into the house to lay him before Jesus when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd they went up on the roof. Now, typical first century Jewish house wouldn't be incredibly big, 20 by 20, let's say, maybe divided into a couple of rooms. And, and very often, and, and the walls would be kind of field stone with some, some mud, and then there would be cross, wood cross beams that you would lay thatch on, or straw, or mud. And you'd kind of weave all of this together, and it was flat. And often you would have a ladder or a staircase up the side of the house, on the outside of the house, not on the inside, so that you could go up and you could lay things on top of the flat roof to dry. Or you could get up there late in the day to enjoy whatever breeze was there or whatever. So, we got four guys or however many guys trucking in. The house is jammed. People are even spilling out. There's no way they can get in, so they do. What required a bit of courage, which was to go up either the ladder or the staircase and to start digging through the roof. Now what's interesting is, here's Jesus, and, and probably the owner of the house was sitting at Jesus' right in the position of honor. And all of a sudden, you would have started to see dust and dirt and broken reeds. I mean, there's no way to hide this for very long, right? Right in the middle of Jesus' teaching. You've got the religious establishment there kind of going, hmm. And you've got the owner of the house who can't get out quick enough, right? Because the whole house is jammed full of people. And you've got the paralyzed guy and his friends. I imagine the paralyzed guy's going, come on, 
hurry up, hurry up, hurry up. And all of a sudden, sunlight breaks into the house, and here they lower him right in front of Jesus. Now, the amount of chutzpah. Now, if you don't know that word, that is a Jewish word for an unrelenting persistence. And Jesus loves it. Jesus loves. When you look at the lives of, uh, the lives of people Jesus interacts with, the people who are apathetic, he lets them walk away. But the people who fight through crowds or dig through roofs or interrupt dinner parties or fight through a crowd of men just to touch the hem of his robe, Jesus loves this stuff. So I imagine the owners scrambling out there. The religious leaders are you know, in their official capacity going, what in the world is this? And I imagine Jesus smiling because he's just that kind of person. So they lower the man in front of him. Now what in the world? Jesus has got a reputation as a healing miracle worker. So everyone imagines Jesus is going to heal the guy. Verse 19, when they could not find a way to do this because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and lowered him on his mat through the tiles. Now Luke is not writing to Jewish folks primarily. He's writing to Gentile folks and their houses had tiles. So he's just updating the image a little bit for them. They lowered him on his mat through the tiles into the middle of the crowd right in front of Jesus. And when Jesus, and what's what's the text say? When Jesus what? Saw their faith. Now, just this is total rabbit trail for just a second. To the Jewish mind, faith is something you can see in other people. In the American mind, faith is something internal and private. If you, to the Jewish mind, if I can't see your faith, you don't have it. So very often in, the, in American church culture, we talk of faith like mental agreement with a bunch of, like, yeah, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Sure. You believe Jesus rose from that? Yeah, of course. But that doesn't play itself out anywhere. Well, to the Hebrew mind, you don't have faith. Because Jesus, and, and, and so there's just this little bitty nuance where Jesus saw their faith. By what they did. I mean, again, in an honor and shame culture, okay, to interrupt a meeting like this, to interrupt the teaching of a, of a, of a, a great teacher like this, to offend someone else's property, and to insert themselves at the front of the line would have brought shame to the four friends. But evidently they were willing to do that for the sake of lowering their friend in front of this Jesus. So, What's Jesus going to do? Interestingly enough, when Jesus saw their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven. Now, if you're the paralyzed guy, (laughs) okay, thanks. Hoping for maybe a little more than that. Right? So what Jesus is doing here is he's taking the opportunity to heal somebody and he's turning it now into some sort of parable. And, and, and I want you to notice when he says, friend, your sins are forgiven. That's kind of a big deal. Because how do you get your sins forgiven in the first century? How, how does forgiveness happen in the first century? Yeah, go to Leviticus 4. And here we go. Go to Leviticus 4. Let's talk about forgiveness for a second. So they lower the paralyzed guy right in front of Jesus. Jesus says, hey, friend, you're forgiven. I want you to to see just a little bit 
what Jesus was bypassing in saying that. So Luke chapter 4, Leviticus chapter 4, sorry. Leviticus chapter 4 concerns something called the sin offering. Front row and your phone's going to go off. Who is it? Let me... That was your alarm to wake up for the 11 o'clock service. <laughs> My goodness! My goodness! I mean, it's not even 10 o'clock and you totally have overachieved for the day. You could take the rest of the day off. Whatever else happens is gravy today, man. You've killed it already. And why does it take you an hour and a half to get ready, or an hour to get ready for the 11 o'clock service? I mean, you got, you got hair a little longer than mine, but not much. So, let's talk forgiveness. Leviticus 4 concerns itself with something called the sin offering. Now, what we're going to do is, I'm going to read you the introduction to this whole series, and then I'm going to show you how the instructions are given to different groups. So if you're a priest, here's your sin offering. If you're the whole community, here's your sin offering. If you're a leader, here's your sin offering. So I just want you to see this, and then I want to read a part, all right? Leviticus 4, notice, the Lord said to Moses, verse 1, say to the Israelites, when anyone sins unintentionally, all right, so you didn't know it was a sin at the time, you find out later, and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commandments, okay? And then the rest of the chapter is dealing with different groups. First group, verse 3, if an anointed priest sins, and then there's this whole procedure you go through. Verse 13, if the whole Israelite community sins unintentionally, and there's a whole procedure you go through. Verse 22, when a leader sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden, and then there's a whole procedure. So you've got... The priest, the whole community, a leader, and now just for any regular person. In verse 27. If any member of the community sins unintentionally and does what is forbidden in any of the Lord's commandments, when they realize their guilt and the sin they've committed uh, becomes known, they must bring as their offering for the sin they committed a female goat without defect. They are to lay their hand on the head of the sin offering and slaughter it at the place of the burnt offering. Then the priest is to take some of the blood with his finger and put it on the horns of the altar of burnt offering and pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar. They shall remove all the fat just as the fat is removed from the fellowship offering and the priest shall burn it on the altar as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. In this way, the priest will make atonement for them and they will be what? Forgiven. Now, there was also a national holiday called the Day of Atonement that was about the forgiveness of sins. Go if you would to Leviticus 16. So sin offerings would be offered all year. Leviticus 16 talks about the Day of Atonement The one time a year, the high priest would go into a part of the temple called the Most Holy Place. And he would cleanse himself, he would cleanse the Most Holy Place, and then he would offer sacrifices for the whole community for the year. And the sacrifices involved two goats. One goat would be sacrificed, the other goat would be sent into the wilderness. We're going to read about the second goat, verse 18. Then the high priest shall come out, to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it. He shall take some of the bull's blood and some of the goat's blood and put it on all the horns of the altar. He shall sprinkle some some of the blood on it with his finger seven times to cleanse it and to consecrate it from the uncleanliness of the Israelites. When Aaron has finished making atonement for the holy place, most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. 
He is to lay both hands on the live goat and confess over it all of the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall then send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed to this task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it. So this was called the Day of Atonement. You would sacrifice a goat and then you would place the sins of the community on another goat. Now if this is raising all kinds of questions, welcome to the club. But I want you to see when you get back to Luke and Jesus looks at a paralyzed guy and says, oh hey, nice to see you. Your sins are forgiven. What's he just bypassed? Sacrifices, priesthood, temple or tabernacle, right? He's totally stepped out of the formal religious structures and now he's just doing this without any of it. Hey, sins are forgiven. No priest, no sacrifice, no temple right there. Go back to Luke. So it's no wonder then that the religious leaders who are there They see the significance of what Jesus has just done and they accuse him of blasphemy. So notice, verse 21, back to Luke 5. Jesus saw their faith, your sins are forgiven. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law began thinking to themselves, who is this fellow that speaks blasphemy? Why? Because he was claiming to forgive sins. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus knew what they were thinking and asked, why are you thinking these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? Now, think about it for a second. Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven is easier to say in this sense. Why? Because no one can see if it's true. If I say, get up and walk, you can tell if that works. Right? If I say your sins are forgiven, everyone's kind of going, okay. We don't know for sure. So Jesus says, hey, which is easier to say? Sins are forgiven, get up and walk. And now, we know that what it's going to cost Jesus to forgive sin, but they don't know that yet. They just would know, listen, I can't see forgiveness, but I can see healing. So Jesus is now going to do the healing to prove that he can do the forgiveness. Okay, so he says to them, but I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, I tell you, get up, take your mat, and go home. Immediately, he stood up in front of them, took what he had been lying on, and went home praising God. Everyone was amazed. Now, Jesus uses a term here called the Son of Man, and we'll get into this more. The Son of Man, in one sense, just meant a human being. So Jesus could have very, very easily used this expression as a roundabout way of referring to himself. I'm just one of the guy. I'm just, one, I'm just a guy. But later in Luke, Son of Man gets packed with David 7 significance. David 7. Daniel 7, excuse me. In Daniel 7, the Son of Man is a figure involved and the eschatological coming of God's kingdom. Big words, points for me on Scrabble. Now, 
So I don't know in what sense he's using it here, but son of man will be one of Jesus' favorite ways of referring to himself. And if you have questions about this, Dr. Fletcher over here wrote his dissertation on son of man. And he just nodded with me, so I hope I'm right. Okay, excellent. Now, what is the significance of this story? You're wondering, aren't you? A couple of things. First of all, go to Luke 4. See, very often we read the Bible, and particularly the Gospels, as if they're these cute, disconnected little Bible stories, right? So here's Jesus feeding the 5,000. Here's Jesus walking on water. Here's Jesus with a little sheep around his... I mean, and, and, and we miss the fact that what Luke has said in the beginning of Luke is, I'm writing you an orderly account, Theophilus, to remind you, to convince you, to persuade you that what I told you was true about this Jesus. This has an apologetic function. And so he's, Luke is building a case. And so when we separate all these stories out, we kind of miss the big point he's making. Right? So the story isn't about, hey, everybody, you all have paralyzed friends, so you should bring them to church. Or, hey, um, you're paralyzed, and you need Jesus to heal you. Okay, it's a bit bigger than that. So in Luke 4, if you remember several weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' first sermon. And in that sermon, he quotes from Isaiah. Verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because He anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And remember, poor just doesn't mean economically hurting. It means the disenfranchised, the humble, those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, the, the people that have only their trust in God. Those, that's the poor. He says, He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we talked about how that, that whole sentence is freighted with all these Old Testament paradigms and narratives. And so Jesus comes and He says, this is what I'm doing now. What Luke has done since then is to show us who the poor are in Jesus' day and what it looks like to preach good news to them. So, immediately after this whole episode, my Bible says Jesus drives out an impure spirit. So he comes across someone inhabited by a demon and he takes care of that. Then it says Jesus heals many. Simon's mother-in-law being one of those. Then you get into chapter 5. Jesus calls this man Peter, who was just a common fisherman, by his own admission a sinful man. And Peter gets drafted into the revolution. Then you've got Jesus touching a man with leprosy. And we saw last week when Aaron taught how astounding it was that Jesus touched the leper because it was thought that anything unclean infected what was clean. Jesus reverses it and says his clean trumps any unclean. But what do all of these stories have in common? It is Jesus' mission to proclaim good news to the poor. And you cannot preach this enough. That all of those who are self-confident and self-righteousness, self-confident and self-righteous, set in their absolute assurance that they're on the inside of the movement of God, those people are in trouble. Because what God is doing is flipping everything upside down. And those people who are confident of their outsider status that they're on the margins they've sinned so far they've sinned too big they've fallen too much those are the people that Jesus has come to preach good news to and so on the one hand Jesus strikes a word against the self-righteousness 
That can so easily come from being a part of His movement, but He speaks a word more importantly to all of those who are absolutely sure they should not be here. Because of what they did last night, what they did last week, what they did last year. I mean, I've had people say to me at a door, they'll say, hey, I haven't been here a while. Is it okay that I'm back? No? What am I going to... Of course it's okay! You know where people will say, you know, it's been a while. I mean, come on! If it's not for you, it's not for anybody. This is good news to the poor. And the poor just aren't the economically disadvantaged. This is anybody who is absolutely sure they've fallen too far and sinned too much. Jesus would say to them, yep, touch you, heal you, bless you, call you, come in. He does it to the self-righteous. He does it to the self-loathing. That's it. And so, if you hear us making the same point every weekend, it's because that's the point Luke is making. Right? So, here we have a paralytic. What's it look like to preach good news to the poor? Well, it looks like interrupting a teaching meeting when a paralytic drops down right in front of you, forgiving his sins, then healing him in wholeness and restoring him back to his community. That's what it looks like. And so what Luke is doing is he's just showing us again and again and again and again what what it looks like to do what Jesus said he was going to do in Luke 4. Make sense? Now, thank you for the one person that said yes. Now, he's also doing something incredibly subversive. Jesus was offering forgiveness, bypassing the official religious structures of Judaism. He, we read Leviticus 4, that's how you do a sin offering, Leviticus 16, Day of Atonement, and Jesus just looks at the dude and says, your sins are forgiven. He'll do that in Luke 7. He'll do that in Luke 18 or 19. He'll just forgive people without any sacrifice, temple, or priesthood. Now why did Jesus get in so much trouble? Did Jesus get in trouble because he was preaching that God loved everybody? No, the Jews knew that. They were his chosen people. They were the apple of his eye. That wouldn't get him killed. Was Jesus in trouble because he was telling people they they were sinners in need of salvation? No, the Jews knew that. They offered sacrifices all the time. Did Jesus get in trouble because he was proclaiming the kingdom of God? No, they'd been yearning for the kingdom of God. Jesus got in trouble because he was doing all of that apart from the established structures of Judaism. Jesus was the priest, the temple, and the sacrifice. So wherever Jesus was, that's where heaven and earth met. See, the temple was thought to be the place where heaven and earth come together, and Jesus was now simply saying, nope, it's moved. So the kingdom of God is now in your midst. Now, Jesus... Now, why was Jesus doing this? Number one, he was doing it because the temple, the priesthood, all of that, those were shadows of the reality of what he was doing. So when the, sh- when the real comes, the shadows lose their significance. But it was also because the institutions that God himself had inaugurated were corrupt. Jesus will show up and he'll clear the temple out with a whip. And we, our Sunday school stories don't often have, here's Jesus with the whip, turning over tables, driving out animals, right? Shutting down the temple complex. And condemning it as corrupt. It had lost its vision for why God had originally created it. And so, what got Jesus into so much trouble 
There was no sacrifice. There was no temple. There was no priesthood. Hey, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. Now, from later New Testament, we know that Jesus was the temple. Right? He talks about himself as the temple. Jesus was the sacrifice. And now Jesus sits as our high priest. So, what Jesus has done is collapse all of that into his person. And that's why some of the religious establishment wasn't terribly happy. Now, do you see the significance of this? Jesus fulfilled and subverted any other mediator between God and human beings. When the curtain that separated the most holy place from the rest of the temple was split at Jesus' right death, from the top to the bottom. Symbolizing that now anybody could come. And that the presence of God wasn't just going to be located in one spot, it was going to be all over. And poured out over all people. What the church has done over the next 2,000 years has been to button that curtain back up. And at our worst... We've reestablished a priesthood, reestablished a temple called the church, and reestablished sacrifices that people have to make to get in. And so if Jesus was willing to turn upside down the established religious of, religion of his day that his father had set in motion, who are we to think that 2,000 years later, if Jesus were walking around among us, he wouldn't do the same thing with Christianity? Right? All of those convinced we're on the inside are in jeopardy. And all of us convinced they're on the outside have good news to hear. Jesus of Nazareth gets stuck with so many of the things we do in His name that are not of Him. And when He addresses His church in the book of Revelation, seven different churches, He says, I know your deeds, I know your deeds, I know your deeds. And to many of them He says, I have this against you. See, he's not just stoked we showed up this morning. He actually has opinions about what's going on in his name. And one of the things he will oppose most is the reestablishment of any other mediator besides him. There's no priest you've got to go to. There's no temple or church you've got to attend. And there is no sacrifice you've got to offer. It is by grace, through faith, in Him, period. And that's it. That's it. And so the reason, the reason that still is offensive is because it offends all of our religious impulses, right? I'm more comfortable with religiousness. I'm more comfortable with a scorecard. I'm more comfortable considering myself better than this person over here. And Jesus just keeps saying, no, 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 no. And even in Protestantism, Right? I mean, there is still a sense where people will say, hey, I need to have the pastor pray for me. And you just go, yeah, I'll be glad to. But do you think that counts for more? <laughs> no. I mean, right? I mean, or is it me? Right? When, when, it, when, when Paul says the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you, and when Peter in later New Testament, takes temple imagery and says, you are priests and you are the temple. It seems to me that anything that limits the full priesthood of believers is antithetical to the movement of Jesus. Because there is only one mediator. The church isn't it. We point to the kingdom. We're not the kingdom. 
We point to Jesus. We don't, people don't have to go through us to get to Him, but sometimes at our worst, we make it seem that way. And so what's the point of a paralyzed man being lowered in front of Jesus? Well, it's that Jesus is awesome. And that no matter how broken you are, unclean you think you are, Jesus is for you. And that Jesus is against anything that would get in the way of people bringing people to Him. Period. When He said, it is finished. Temple system, finished. Priesthood, finished. Sacrificial system, finished. So we come today, we don't thankfully have to deal with blood and altars and goats. That would offend our vegan (laughs) friends. We don't come today in fear and trembling. Now maybe a little fear and trembling would be good for us, but we come today boldly entering and coming before the throne of grace. We come today with a sympathetic high priest. And so, brothers and sisters, we just simply want to remind ourselves of how good the gospel actually is. And it's for you. It's for you. No matter if you've been walking with Jesus for 50 years or you're not walking with Him yet. It's for you. Any other mediator between you and Almighty God is taken care of. Just one. Religion is us working up. Gospel is God coming down. That's the difference. So people will say, hey, don't all religions lead to God? I say no religion leads to God. None. Not, if you understand Christianity is a religion, it doesn't lead to God. Gospel is God coming to us and subverting all other claimants to mediation. So, close your eyes if you would for a second. Father, we just want to be captured again by the beauty and majesty of this Jesus and by the preaching of the good news to the poor. We understand ourselves to be bearers of that news, but also recipients of it. And Father, we just stand against and we pray against the walls and things in our heart that so want hierarchies, so want institutions. And Father, we just proclaim the reality that You are our High Priest. And that when You poured out Your Spirit on Your people, that now You say that we are Your temple. And that You were the sacrifice. There's no sacrifice left to be offered. May we, God, just get a glimpse of how differently we'd live if we actually trusted all of that. And bless Justin's guitar. Amen.